Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with the Eat to Perform podcast. And this week we have a very special guest, Lori Walsh, who's also an ETP coach. So say hi, Lori. Hello, everyone. And I'll have even Lori introduce the topic we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome, a syndrome that's close to my heart because <laughs> yeah. I struggle with it. Ah, and why do you think this is a, a good topic to talk about, especially if it's new and you know some people may not have heard about it before? Uh, I, from what statistics say, one in ten women struggle with it. Um, some don't know they have it until they try to go to conceive, and then they, you know, the doctor then says, "Hey, by the way." Um, so I think that it's something that people don't know enough about. Um, it's also not a lot of research done in the 20 or 30 years that I've known I've had it. If I admit how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) We won't give away your exact age, so no worries. I was about 18 when I found out and then now I'm 42. So yeah, we've definitely hit 30 years. (laughs) Gotcha. Well, close to it, close to it. My math is bad. That's all right. And <laughs> what is your background? I know you work as a Eat to Perform coach, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for people who may not have heard of you. I am actually, I went to school to be an elementary school teacher. Oh. So, um, yeah, some things that people probably didn't know, probably didn't even make the connection, but <laughs> I actually never ended up teaching and I ended up going into uh, several businesses of friends of mine and my own and managing stores and ended up wanting to have kids. And that's probably when my polycystic ovarian syndrome really came into play. I mean, at 18, I could care less about kids or cycles and all that stuff. And I thought, well, when it comes to having kids, I'll worry about it then. And I I had a very active lifestyle. I mean, I did anything from ski instructing to working in retail on my feet. So it was very active. Um, Then I got into my middle 20s. And started doing um, headhunting for recruiting agencies and worked for an accountant for a time. So I've had a mixed bag of stuff. But then that led to some, you know, sedentary jobs. And that's probably when my health concerns became, you know, front and center with that. And um, and then a few, three, four years ago, I ran into Paul on the Internet. And um, when you put your book out, Metflex, he asked me if I could edit it because part of my background is English literature too. Nice. So um, I helped edit the book and here I am <laughs> oh. all these years later. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Um, so for people who are maybe not familiar with PCOS, can you give a little bit more uh, detail about it and you know what really goes on with it and you know how is it kind of different from some other things and then we'll get into more of the metabolism component coming up then too. Yep. It's, so it's, um, it's an endocrine disorder that affects your ovaries mainly. They, are, um, they used to have five ways of detecting it. Obviously, you have to be diagnosed by your doctor. It's not something you would self-diagnose yourself with. You mean I but, can't um, surf the internet and say that I have it? Sure, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> you might not get the help you need. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, one big sign is that you, your ovaries, which normally look like a potato, would then look like corn pops shrink-wrapped. So there's cysts inside that affect the release of an egg. 
That's one symptom. The other one is to have your FSH and your LH levels imbalanced. In a normal woman, they should always be balanced. And what are those uh, for people who are not familiar? FSH is your follicle-stimulating hormone, and LH is your luteinizing hormone. So they affect the release of an egg. Basically, you're ovulating. or um, When it's imbalanced, you don't ovulate correctly. Um, and then the cysts also play into it because they get inflamed and, of course, they irritate the egg, which then gets too big to release. So, And testosterone is a little higher in polycystic ovarian syndrome women, not so much, um, not, so mu- not as high as, say, the lowest male, but typically it's higher than the average female. Hmm. So then there's other symptoms, you know, um, blood work would obviously reveal the FSH-LH imbalance. Um, some have insulin resistance, but they're saying nowadays that sometimes women don't find out till they're already insulin resistant. So it's kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times when women are frustrated with not getting their periods or not having a baby, then they'll go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you're insulin resistant and you have polycystic ovarian syndrome but there's also thinner women with pcos that also have insulin resistance too so some of some of that plays into you know genetics as well family history diabetes and metabolic you know problems so but the so those are some things there are other some side effects um male pattern baldness um male pattern hair growth so from the higher testosterone i would assume possibly or other factors Yeah. Yeah. And then they say, I mean, you hear these things from years ago where they would have circus freaks like women's with with beards. Yeah. And and so, you know, you think back like maybe that was, you know, a condition back then. They just didn't have a name for it. it. Right. So some of that stuff plays in. And, you know, so those are some symptoms that typically um, they tend to be more apple shaped. So um, women who have polycystic ovarian syndrome will gain fat like a male. In the, in the belly area, not so much in the hips and thighs. Um, so those are some characteristics off the top of my head that I could yeah. think of side effects, some conditions that would cause concern. But mainly most people, when they do find out, it's because either they're not cycling normal or they can't get pregnant. And, you know, that'll vary in age from your mid-20s to your 30s, you know, when people decide to have a family. Yeah. So if you go into your physician, is there like kind of sort of one gold standard test to determine if you have it or not? Or how would the physician determine if you have PCOS? They used to require the five symptoms, but now they require just three. And sometimes it it depends. So, I mean, FSHLH is probably the biggest standard. They're saying now that some PCOSers don't even have the cysts. Or you can be in phases of cysts. So, like, mm. there are times where they're inflamed and there are other times where they're not noticeable. So, depending on when they do an ultrasound, you know, would depend whether they see it or not. So, you know, I think the doctor, they like I said, they used to choose, you'd have to have all five requirements. Now it's three. So, that's kind of how they roll from what I remember. Yeah, and that's always a little bit harder, too, because it's, you know, it's kind of like even looking at metabolic disorders and stuff too um it's what exactly there's not really like one exact you know gold standard test of either have it or you don't it's like well you kind of got these three and well we looked at imaging and well you know it looks like they're still okay but you've got these three markers and 
I think that's what always makes it sometimes a little bit difficult where you're kind of, it's not, I think people tend to think that, well, I go to my doc and there's this one test for PCOS and I have it or I don't, and that's it. And it's not quite that clear. (laughs) Yeah. And it could be, you know, you could go through cycles of times where things are normal. I mean, they call it a syndrome because there's no definitive, like constant symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and then you also vary between, you know, like my OBGYN and even my endo says that I'm more on the mild side. Now, there's some women that struggle with these symptoms that are much worse, you know, and so, you know, it it also will vary your results and how you deal with it are very personal, you know, and N equals one experimenting. Right. and obviously, we're not intending to give any medical advice or anything here. But yes, if somebody, <laughs> yeah, if somebody thinks that they may have it, what are sort of likely things they may experience? So at least they know to say, you know, hey, I've got you know these couple things going on. I should go to my doc and at least ask them if you know if I have this. What are sort of you know markers or things they should look for? Well, the first thing definitely is your menstrual cycle. If it's not right, that should be your first clue. Even when you're young. I mean, like I said, I was 18 and I, I was a late bloomer with that. And my mom was concerned and she brought me. I probably, uh. if you know, she didn't push it. I probably would have found out like most people do in their mid twenties when they're ready to have kids or something. So that's the, that's the main one. And I think, you know, they say with, um, because you don't cycle regularly, you're obviously your risk for cervical cancer goes up because you know you're not you're not flushing those things out plaque builds up so that's probably your first indication the second probably would be if you're trying to have kids and you're not able to or it's taking a really long time that would be another you know indication to probably get it checked out most people don't you know those are usually the first two two ways that people tend to to find out so no that's that's good info and transitioning a little bit into more of the metabolism side related to this because obviously a lot of people listening are obviously interested about health but you know fat loss and performance and as listeners are probably aware that in females if their energy intake is super low that that can mess with their cycles and that type of thing too so how does that play into this or is that kind of a little bit of a separate thing so talk to us a little bit about that well they i think when we started out at first with in, in to perform we would actually set people with like a deficit of 10 percent tde um with pcos and insulin resistant folks because they tend to be a little bit slower in that department and tde is total daily energy expenditure so for people listening yes. who are new it's you know, how many calories are you expending if we add up your resting metabolic rate and how much you move around and if you eat protein, which has a little bit more thermic effect of food and exercise. And so it's basically just how many total calories you'd be using per day. Right, correct. Yeah, so, but with PCOSers, they have the benefit of um, of adding better muscle. I think... Um, Many people have said that, I mean, the uptake 
the best time to do that is is the weight lift, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the best thing you can do as a woman with PCOS is some sort of resistant training in your program, and that's going to obviously help your metabolism and everything else too. And it also helps with the extra, you know, sugar floating around. You know, it's not being processed properly or adequately as a normal person is. <laughs> Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. Why does why does that happen, and is that sort of a pro or a con? I would think that the ability to build muscle is a pro, but some people don't like that yeah. aesthetic, <laughs> you know. But I've tried to come from the perspective of like work with what you've got. So I also realize I'm not a petite woman. I probably never will be petite, and I'm going to use that muscle to my benefit, you know. That, but that's my personal opinion. Everyone else has their own aesthetic goals and opinions on that. But, I, you know, I figured I can't change much of biologically how I'm geared. So I might as well work with where I'm at. But um, having more muscle is definitely a benefit because it's only going to help, what, you know, improve insulin resistance um, and p- improve your overall health. You know, increases your metabolic rate. So... I highly encourage that, especially to anybody that comes on board with us. That that's the first thing I suggest: cut down the cardio and increase some weightlifting, even some high-intensity interval training to usher some of that sugar out. You know. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, question my... for when a bunny trail there. Sorry. That's okay. Oh no worries. Um, uh, my buddy Coach Phil Stevens is very big. He's had a lot of. Uh, lifters come through his facility and when i was down there i was surprised at you know how many of them were actually female and it's very interesting whether you look at you know crossfit or i know a couple other guys that run you know primarily olympic lifting places and you know anecdotally when i've been there it's more women than guys and initially it says they started out with you know women came in and said i don't want to be you know doing that heavy lifting stuff and he's like well you know well work with you, you know, where you're at, obviously your goals are your goals, but over time he's just like added a a little bit more lifting and, you know, some of the women are just really good at it, you know? And so he would kind of, you know, push them in that direction. He's like, do you, do you want to do something that you're probably going to be better at with less effort? (laughs) Right. And And, and and over time, a lot of them have been, you know, really pretty high ranked doing that and now they really enjoy it you know and i talk to them and they look back and they go wow why was i trying to do this other weird thing before it would just it, when i look back on it now it's like it wasn't even fun <laughs> yeah yeah I, I mean i think sometimes too like people think more is better and you know so they add more cardio or more you know crossfit some of that stuff i mean your cortisol goes up and then you're not recovering well. And then, you know, there's some, some studies that show that women with PCOS have higher cortisol or higher stress, you know, sensitivity. So it's better to find something that you can do that's going to change the way your body looks without the added stress of it, you know. Yeah. But that's yeah. just my opinion too. So no, I would, I would agree with that. And, I think just general advice for anyone, uh, my buddy Adam Glass said this to me years ago, and he's like, it's just more fun to do things that you're better at. You know, I think everyone has a certain, you know, whether it's lifting or cardio or a specific type of lifting, um, 
I mean, I'm not that good at sort of standard symmetrical lifts at all, but if it's uh, the more goofy off-axis bizarro lift it is, I tend to do better on those just because of my structure, you know? So I think over time you then realize it's, oh, well, doing the things that I'm a little bit better at is, that's kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah, and then (laughs) you'll stick with something more. I mean, it's funny looking back at my life and like things that I, because I was always into working out. I mean, in my 30s, late 20s into 30s when we were trying to conceive and you know, I was putting on a lot of weight at that point because of the sedentary job. So like, of course, you know, now I'm sitting instead of walking around all day, but I never had any sort of goal, but I was always drawn to weights. I mean, like in high school, I was on the track team, but I didn't run. I was the hammer and shot put and javelin girl because that appealed to me. But anything fast related, I was even to now, like I took a, my friend did a CrossFit class and I said, all right, I'll go. It took me like three or four days for my HRV to come back up. I just moving fast and it just was not my cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't recover well. I didn't feel well afterwards. And some people enjoy that and that's great. But my body was like a swollen mess for like three days <laughs> afterwards. Like, oh man, no, that's definitely not the direction. I'm much slower and heavy. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you even see that in in lifters too, right? Like you've you know people who've been around gyms long enough. Like the the deadlift if, is a perfect example of that. Um, you'll see people where you know they do whatever weight, let's say four hundred, right? And you're like, wow, that was pretty fast. You know, four hundred five glued to the floor. You're like, what the heck? Makes no sense, right? And you'll watch another lifter, you know, do four hundred, and it's like takes a couple seconds. You're going, oh man, that's pretty close to his max, and you know, adds a little more weight, and next thing you know, he's up over 500, and it looks the same. You know, it's like, wow. <laughs> right, right. It's amazing. Yeah, so there's definitely but... differences there. Um, a little bit about inflammation. I've read some stuff that says inflammation is related to PCOS, and again, it gets into the, the chicken and the egg thing, but uh, talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Well, I definitely up my omega-3s because, you know, that was a smart move with inflammation. I do find, personally, I struggle with uh, inflammation. And, you know, again, like I you know, I said about training, that affects the way I tailor my training so that I could kind of avoid some of that. Um, but, you know, it's definitely, obviously your hormones are out of whack, so it's affecting inflammation in your body in a way you know um and and then like i said too about stress that's another thing that puts that raises up the cortisol in your system and um and it could affect ovulation and and the way you perform as well so yeah and the the people you've dealt with that have pcos have you found that like if we use markers of stress right so we'll use like a heart rate variability for people who are not familiar it's Looking at the marker of the little bit of difference from one beat to the next, which tells you the status of your nervous system, are you more the parasympathetic side, which is rest and digest, or are you on more the sympathetic side, which is a little bit more stressed? Um, Resting heart rate can be kind of a a crude marker for for stress as long as it's done first thing in the morning in a resting condition. Um, Have you seen that people who have PCOS tend to be... showing signs that their body is under a little bit more stress than compared to other people? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I've seen too. I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, no. And I mean, you know, it's one of those things where you, I mean, until I had the HRV, which was probably around Christmas time, I think. So we're June now. So I've had it for six months and I went back and forth on the fence about it. Cause I've heard you talk so much about it. Of course, half the staff has one. Yeah, and I, I thought I don't about it a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't really need one. I kind of know when I'm stressed and when I'm not right. But the, the interesting thing about it is I actually pushed through a lot more stress than I gave myself credit for. Yes. You know, and then of course that affects my training. It affects my everyday life. Forget about just training, but like how I deal with the kids and, you know, like household stress, work stress. Um, I definitely need more sleep than I thought I would need to. Of course, yeah. that all plays into that too. So, yeah. I, I And then for the, the people that we've helped, I've definitely seen that the stress is a huge thing. Stress and sleep. Lack of sleep and lack of de-stressing. So finding ways to just, you know, rearrange your life to better accommodate for these things yeah and that's a i think probably the biggest thing that's changed in just my overall training for pretty much everyone over the last probably been doing hrv on myself daily about four years once the technology is available my research previous to that was in hrv and been able to look at a lot of people's hrv especially over the last couple of years it's become more common and that's the big thing that i've noticed is that uh, one, exactly what you said, people are really unconscious to the amount of stress that they're under. Um, I got an email from an uh, online client of mine who's awesome, and I love working with her. Everything about her is great. Uh, her resting HRV was, I think, 39, so which is graded on a 1 to 100 scale. Most people I'd want to see, you know, at least in the 60s, somewhere in there. And her resting heart rate was, you know, pushing the low 80s. And to her mind, she's like, well, I'm not really that stressed. And I'm looking at the numbers. The stressed. <laughs> going, wow, you're stressed, right? <laughs> and that's the hard part because our, our nervous system is generally wired to be very good at comparatives. So if you're constantly stressed, a lot of those people don't really know that they're stressed, right? Because that's what they're used to. That's kind of their life. It's like if you go outside on a super hot day and you walk inside the air conditioning, you're like, wow, it's like really cool in here. But if you've hung out inside all day, you're like, eh, it's okay. <laughs> you know, you right, don't notice right. that big difference, right? Because there's nothing to compare it to. Um, yeah, and that, that's how I felt too when I when I started doing the HRV. I'm like, wow, I guess I just tolerated it. Or, you know, even the thinking of like having a third baby and not sleeping through the night and the pressure you know, in those following years as they're, as they're growing and learning sleep patterns themselves and then pushing myself, whether it's workouts or, you know, a perfect house or whatever standards, you, you know, yeah. you yeah. strive for and then realize why am I spinning circles? Why am I not improving anything? Because you're constantly working under duress, like, you know. Yeah. And the other big yeah. one you mentioned sleep too. And so in HRV stuff I've done with people, there's a way to qualitatively analyze, you know, sleep and diet and nutrition and all these other factors. And all those things I've noticed in people make a big difference. But for some people, it may be more their training, maybe more nutrition, maybe more other things. But in pretty much every single person I've had over the last three and a half years, 
I haven't found one person yet who wasn't affected by sleep, meaning that sometimes it may be delayed, um, but there's pretty much every single person I've seen is that uh, sleep has a massive effect on their stress level, which when you think about it, it makes perfect sense, right? And you look at how often you know people sleep at night in terms of total hours. You know, most people I've seen anecdotally is like six and a half, maybe, and that's probably on the good side. Um, and again, those are the same people who are like, well, I don't feel that stressed. And then you have someone who has like uh, PCOS, so they have a little bit more internal stress because of things that are going on. And I just find that those people tend to need, you know, eight to nine and a half of hours of good sleep a night, which when you first try to explain that to them when they're sleeping six hours, they look at you like you're a four-headed space alien. You're like, oh, it's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And my, you know, it's funny. My mom said to me the other day, she's like, you know, when you were little, you would always ask to go to bed. And, you know, you would sleep like 10 hours, but then you'd have a special event like Christmas or something and you'd get less sleep and, you know, you, you would get sick right away. Oh, and sure. I thought, gee, that's kind of interesting. I mean, of course, you know, lack of sleep is going to make your immune system down too. But it's funny to, for that she could see that pattern from such a young age. But as I got older, I, you know, I would say, oh, I don't need that much sleep. But I do. <laughs> I do. And I'm, I'm a much better person with more sleep. <laughs> Yeah. Much better yeah. to be around. But then you handle stress better in everyday stuff. I mean, and less cravings for sugar. I mean, that all kind of played into it, too, because you're looking for some quick energy to make up for the lack of sleep. Yeah, and I think yeah. also the cravings for sugar, although it's not well documented, my thought is that it's your body's way of dealing with stress, right? You're trying to find yeah. that sort of biochemical solution, right? Because if you look at how what fuel your body uses under stress, right? So if there's a bear that jumps out at you and you start sprinting, you're primarily using carbohydrates at that point. So I've often wondered how often people become stressed that their body is trying to mitigate that stress by increasing carbohydrate level too. So, Yeah, yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah. Cool. So on the practical side, what are some of the top things? So if someone goes in, they talk to their doc, they think they have PCOS, or maybe they're just kind of you know frustrated with their results. They're not seeing the fat loss results that they want. Uh, what are like the top things that you've done with clients and yourself that have made the biggest difference? Well, first we you know we talk about their habits because I think that affects a lot. Like we've talked about stress and sleep and those kind of things. The other thing is you you either have two camps coming in. You have people that are afraid to eat any carbs because of the insulin resistance. Um, and I tinkered a lot with that. And I know you and I have had yeah. conversations about it. And um, you know, easing their comfort into that carbs are okay. And it actually, like you said earlier, they reduce stress. So that's helpful. And all of this is bringing down that level of inflammation, the level of stress that your body's already feeling, you know, from, from the syndrome. And then just finding out, um, we just had a client this week that actually was taking her glucose readings in the morning because she was pre-diabetic. Mm -hmm. And, um, just looking for some patterns. I know I spent, I wish I had more of this documented, but I spent a lot of time at probably a good year and a half documenting my glucose 
you know, mentally, I didn't really write it all down, but I started noticing weird patterns, like, because at that time I had the insulin resistance after losing weight, which made me think something's not right. Usually when you lose weight, all those markers should improve, and they were not. Um, but I also was tinkering around with too high fats and too low carbs. So mm. I when you went, say low carbs, uh, about how low were you on low carbs, just for people the reference point? Well, it originally started out as paleo, so 80 grams, but I wasn't active uh, training at that point. Gotcha. And then I eventually went to ketogenic, and that's probably when I had my biggest problems. Ooh, and we'll then back to that one. But. <laughs> yeah. And then when I went from ketogenic, I thought some things should, you know, we really need some carbs. So I started adding some in, and I still struggled at that point, and I was probably in the 130 range, 150 range. Um, and it wasn't until I started pushing them 200 grams and up and dropping the fats. Yeah, there was a time where I had the fats up and the carbs up, and I was still getting high readings. Mm. But then I dropped the fats down and the carbs up a little more, and we started seeing some leveling off. And for two years now, um, both of my blood, you know, animal blood works, my A1C is coming in the normal range. My triglycerides have dropped from like the 300s to 114, I believe. My wow. cholesterol oh, went from like 190 to 145. And my insulin all dropped because it was all high. Insulin was high. I have fasting glucose was like in the 110s. It's now in the low 80s. Nice. So, yeah. So it was nice to have that solution. But I was afraid of carbs. And I think that's the first thing I tell people. Like, don't be afraid of the carbs. Let's just get more fiber in your diet. Up the carbs. Drop some of the fat, you know, and play around in that area and see how they react. With our morning glucose, you know, seeing some patterns. Like that one client, this is what I was going to say, she was, she was doing it on her own, and when I looked at her numbers, I thought, look at that, you have two high-carb days, and then your blood sugars drop in the morning to, you know, below 100. Like, that's fantastic. There's something, your body's telling you something there, you know? Yeah, I've often wondered, and I've seen similar stuff too, which is it's almost a little bit counterintuitive, because on one hand, I, I do agree that if you're, let's say, PCOS aside... A very sedentary person you're not doing a lot of movement you're doing a desk jockey type job that yeah i think having a lower carbohydrate not necessarily no carbohydrates is probably going to be better for you higher protein right because your body's just not that good at using carbohydrates but i think people want to then transfer that to people who are lifting weights and who are active and in that population what i've seen is almost the reverse even in some PCOS uh, people, such as you mentioned, that if you're in the gym, you know, lifting weights and, and doing things that are, one, you know, increasing the amount of muscle you have, two, actively using carbohydrates, and three, it, it is actually a stressor on your body. Granted, there's a positive adaptation to doing it. And those populations I've seen that if they really whack their carbs super low, that all the stress indicators in their body just start going up and up. And I think we have to just be careful with that. Um, and I've seen the same thing you mentioned where having some people with a higher carb day and then looking at their markers the next day. So one thing I'll do with someone in sort of a transition period is, all right, so tomorrow, yeah, protein's kind of moderate. Fats are relatively low. And you were normally eating, let's say, 100 grams of carbohydrates. Well, I'm going to double that, and you'll go to maybe 200. 
and they look at you like, oh my God, that's crazy. I can't do that. <laughs> I'm like, it's just for one day. And what I want to see is what changes after that, right? So if your HRV gets better, so your stress level gets better, maybe there's a slight change in heart rate, maybe your blood glucose actually gets a little bit better, then we know that you're probably a little bit too low most of the time, right? So that doesn't mean you're going to go from 100 to 200 every day now, but that just gives me some information to say, okay, does your body like going to a little bit higher carbohydrate intake? And if there was no change in any of it, and I think I was at, you know, a carbohydrate amount that was good enough to get a response, then, okay, so maybe we'll, we'll change some other stuff or things like that. Um, what are your thoughts on trying that out? Well, I think the hardest part um, with, with the polycystic ovarian specifically is the, is the, the shifting. Yeah. And, I, and I remember you and I had this conversation very early on that sometimes the shift back and forth too much, it, the system gets kind of slow and, and um, catching up to that. So, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know. And I, I think that that's also independent of each person too, to some extent, like how they're going to react with it. Cause some right. people do right. really great with the lower end. Um, I'm just not one of them. And I don't know if it's because of my past with tapping out the bottom so much that the, my body's like, no way, we're not going back there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's the hard part with with this syndrome is that some folks will do really well with the higher carbs and some folks won't. Or some folks will have the trouble transitioning back and forth. So yeah, then I guess having... Sort of metabolic flexibility, right? And there's been a bunch right. of research looking at PCOS in terms of metabolic flexibility, you know, how well can you use fats and how well can you use carbohydrates and how well can you switch back and forth? Um, what is your thoughts related to metabolic flexibility in people with PCOS? I think each person's going to have to do a lot of um, playing around to find where they're at. Like I said, it took me quite a while and, and a lot of times people are looking for a fast solution and until you get to know how your body's going to react to these things, that's the best way to find out. You have to do a little give and take there, you know. Um, like I said, for me, it now we're three years into here. Uh, I'm finding that the higher carbs and the lower fat do me better than than playing around with the lower end. But some people may still find the lower end. Maybe they've been, you know, high carb, low fat the majority of their time, and they're coming into us that they may need the flip flop to see how they react to it, you know? Um, but I would, the most important thing I would say to any person with PCOS is just have patience with yourself and with whoever's helping you because it's not, it's not a fast process. It's really a long haul. And, you know, and a lot of it, like most people who struggle with type two diabetes and stuff is some of it is just habit changes that take time. You know, if you're accustomed to eating a certain way or eating types of foods, I think that some studies say that type 2 diabetics are probably the most predictable eaters. Like mm -hmm. they tend to go to the same things over and over again. So that may be something, too, that that cycle, if it's broken up a little, would benefit, you know, a PCOS or as well. So that then that's variance, I guess, in some extent. But you know, but playing around with it and giving it time, not just trying it for a week and saying this is not working, or you know, but 
it's a mental battle, especially for win- women when they're looking in the mirror and they see their other friends and they hear these things on the internet and then they start thinking, oh my gosh, I'm just going to cut all my calories or, you know, nothing ever works to lose weight or, you know, it's, it's definitely a mental exercise in patience. Yeah. And that kind of matches some of the literature too, that if, if you're metabolically inflexible, just in my anecdotal experience, that uh, that population, however you assess them to be metabolically inflexible, tend to exactly what you said, take more time to see changes, right? Their their system isn't as good of taking changes and altering its physiology faster. It tends to take a much longer time. And I think that's one of the hard parts is that you may do XYZ change. And in my experience, you have to kind of hold that for maybe two to four weeks and then see what happens with it. Um, you know, especially if I do like the carbohydrate thing and I don't see any acute changes, I'm really kind of thinking, well, let's try something and do that consistently, right? Making sure that they're compliant for two to four weeks and see what happens at that point. Um, I think a lot of people in general want to do one change and expect to see immediate results, yay or nay. And a lot of times that's just not really how physiology works, especially in this case. Right, right. And then or or they want to make too many changes at once and you don't really right. realize what exactly you did that made the change happen. Was it X, Y, or Z? Because <laughs> yeah. I changed all three at once. So, yeah. Cool. And on the practical side, so what would be, so if someone's listening, they go, oh boy, I have PCOS Obviously, they want to work with someone who has experience with that and, and knows what's going on, make sure they get a diagnosis from their physician. Let's say they've done all that already. What type of data would you want them to collect? What have you seen that's the most useful? Weight fluctuations. I mean, obviously, if you're food tracking, you know, finding out some patterns there. If your weight's fluctuating, it's a good thing. If it's not fluctuating, that's a bad thing. <laughs> um, so seeing those scale go up or down a couple pounds each day is good, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because that thing. means your body's processing fluids better. It's not, you know, not stuck. It, yeah. And then also blood sugar. I think a lot of people with polycystic ovarian syndrome don't track their blood sugar. And I didn't like I said, until even after my third child. So um, that's one thing for sure. And then also, we didn't talk much about this at all, but I would highly recommend that people do a whole foods diet and complex carbs, you know, not just refined sugars or wheats, but whole wheat, you know, things that are have more fiber in it seem to be better for people with PCOS, Um there's also a supplement out there that I use called, I'm not going to butcher the name of it, but it's, I think it's called inositol, but you can correct me since you're the scientist. Oh, <laughs> is it inositol? That's it. That's it. Yes. Uh, yeah, I told you okay. I was going to butcher it. I could spell it's it. all right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that apparently helps with cycles. It also helps, um, I believe, with blood sugar, right? I mean, yeah, I know that... Uh, types of mood disturbance, either, was uh, Dr. Charlie Popper from Harvard. Is When I went to a seminar he was speaking at, he uses uh, super high amounts of micronutrition, multivitamins, and inositol, and also L-theanine at time with, with clients. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, And then also metformin is a therapeutic um, 
thing that a doctor, obviously you have to get that prescribed from a doctor, but you know, a lot of people who've come to us said, well, my doctor put my metformin, like it's all over. I'm like, no, it's not all over. Metformin is actually good for you for now. And I used it for a time too. And when I, the diagnosis of the IR dropped, you know, then I didn't need it anymore. But I think that there's some therapeutic, you know, good to that too. It does its purpose. So, yeah. So yeah, the slower carbs and then carbs spread out a little more through the day. And then sometimes I tell them to play around with their post-workout carbs because I know you have mm-hmm. shared some people who have insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes will not be, you know, there's enough in their blood system that they don't need the extra push at the end. So those are kind of things we have them play around with. Nice. And I know you sent me a very cool spreadsheet from someone and they had on there the date they had obviously, and I know on a different spot, logged all their nutrition, and they had their AM glucose. They also had blood pressure, which I thought was pretty interesting because just in the cases I've seen, their blood pressure tends to be a little bit higher, especially if they haven't been exercising, and then their resting heart rate. And, you know, all of that is things that people can get pretty easily themselves. I mean, I would add a heart rate variability to that list, too. Um, yes. Glucose you can get with just i've used a precision extra monitor from i got it from amazon it's pretty inexpensive it's you know there's some debate about how super accurate it is but we're not really trying to split hairs here we're just looking at you know are you 110 and then the next day is you know 95 cool that's a lot better right (laughs) looking you're just looking for some baseline trends right you know i mean of course if you're gonna (laughs) I mean, I know for sure if I'm sleeping three hours last night or something and I get up this morning and take my fasting blood sugars, it's going to be a little bit higher than it normally would because I didn't sleep. (laughs) And and that that particular client, I think the one that you have the spreadsheet Mm -hmm. on in further conversation with her, you know, it turns out she's she's working towards some really stressful things in her life right now where mm-hmm. she's not getting adequate sleep and she's going to bed really late and getting up later in the day. So all that stuff plays into to that stress load too. So, and your insulin. Yeah. Especially when, you know, on this sheet, we're seeing resting heart rates, 80 is her low at times, 93, 101, 91. Even if you don't have heart rate variability, that's telling me that you're pretty stressed um, or your aerobic capacity is horrible or a combination of those, right? Right, yeah. right. Cool. And I think the key with that too is that when people are tracking their data is that to not get too hung up on, you know, an acute change and then go back and look at it and see if you're using, let's say, blood glucose as one of your monitors, what are the other lifestyle factors that affect that? I know when I started doing mine probably uh, eight months ago, just starting to do it, you know, more each AM because I went to the physician and they said my resting blood glucose was kind of borderline high. I think it was like 105 or something. I was like, oh, that's not good. So I started doing it each morning and, you know, a couple of times I got like 110. I'm like, oh my God, this is, (laughs) you know, becoming not so good. And what I realized was that for me, that stress was the big one and that uh, sleep. So I thought I was doing better with sleep. I was averaging you know, seven to seven and a half, which was much better than where I was before. Um, but it wasn't until I bumped it up to, you know, eight, eight and a half, you know, nine, 
that I would see almost a direct correlation between blood glucose and then also sleep. You know, if I slept six hours, you know, it was probably for a while in the hundreds. You know, the one night I slept in and I got 10 hours of sleep, it dropped to, you know, I think it was like 93. And over time, you know, by modifying that and looking at my stress, I got it, you know, back down to a normal level within about five months, you know, so it was routinely, you know, 83 to 90, you know, somewhere in there. So I think people just need to look and see what is the thing that's affecting it and not get too worried about, you know, the one measurement that's kind of out of range and then do the average over time so that if your average is kind of slowly dropping down, you know, that you're moving in the correct direction then. Right, right. I had never, you know, made the connection in the past. I mean, when I had the insulin resistant diagnosis, I mean, there was so much going on in my life that, like I said to you about stress, it's like, yeah. you know, yeah. like a frog in a pot with boiling water. Like it was cold when I got in here. It didn't feel like I was <laughs> boiling now, you know. I mean, and you look back at that time and I thought, gosh, I was sleeping five hours a night. Uh, you know, I had a kid who had severe uh, sleeping issues and he had a lot of setbacks and disabilities. I was eating, you know, 1800 calories a day or less for someone who's five foot 10 at the time I was, you know, when I started this whole journey, I was 245 pounds and now I'm down to like, you know, one in the one eighties. But, um, you know, all those things were building up. It was no wonder why I had insulin resistant on top of the polycystic ovarian syndrome. And, you know, but, but sometimes you need other people to say, hey, look at this big pile here. <laughs> and yeah. let's, you know, yeah. spread it out so you could see, like, you know, how much you're carrying, how much of a load you're carrying. And what can we do to, like, lessen this load? You know, if it means let's let's work on sleep this week. Okay, we'll work on sleep for the next two weeks. And, you know, let's work on getting some slower carbs in through the day, to, you know, calm the system down. Maybe a little carbs before bed so that you could sleep through that adrenaline rush in the middle of the night instead of being up at 4 a.m. going, now what do I do? Laundry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of people just keep piling stuff on and then, you know, add training to this and try to manage a schedule with kids and working full time. And don't take any consideration to how that impacts their health. Yeah, and that's so. a great point. And it's this is something I know I'm still working through myself is that I think the human tendency is to solve everything by adding more stuff, right? It's, right. And then we're right. kind of <laughs> sold that from a marketing standpoint of, oh, you're high stress. We need to add this, this, and that. Or you need to do this or do that. And I I think a lot of times just sort of reevaluating your life and deciding, okay, what are things I can do less of, right? Because you've only got so much energy, so much time, doesn't matter who you are. And I know that's a, a process I'm trying to go more through too is paying attention to the tasks that I do. Do I enjoy it or do I not enjoy it? Do I feel better after it? Do I feel worse? Instead of the mindset of, oh, this is just something that I have to do all the time. The reality is everything you do is a choice, right? So I talk to people right. at a very high-stress job. They're like, I have to go to work tomorrow. It's like, well, actually you don't. You know, you could not go to work. Now, is there a, a huge consequence for that? And you may not make any money and lose your house or who knows what will happen? Yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but because of those things, you still consciously or unconsciously usually decided that, 
the trade-off is that I'm going to go do this high-stress job because I want X, Y, and Z. That's not a bad thing at all, but I always try to get clients to at least make that a conscious decision. Because once they realize what they're doing and then they realize the cost that they're paying for that, maybe there's some way they can modify it or in some people's cases, they've entirely changed it over time too. So I think just, right. just looking at things you could possibly do less of and then also realizing that everything you do is an act of choice and you're just weighing sort of the, the pro and the con in your head. Right, right, exactly. So last thing, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say too that you know the to to hit on the the stress when people you know with polycystic ovarian syndrome are trying to conceive there's a whole level of stress that comes with that you oh, know yeah. as well and and if anyone's out there that's going through that time period in their life my biggest suggestion is just try to find a way to defrag cuz you you know you get so wrapped up into the like why isn't this working or you know that that's not helping. <laughs> it's not helping move the ball down the court with the added stress of that. So you know. Yeah, and how often do you hear the the story of couples who are trying to conceive? They've tried everything known to man. Nothing works. They're like, ah, we give up. It's just not going to happen. And they go through the adoption process, and all of a sudden they're pregnant. You know, whoa, yeah, did that happen. <laughs> I mean, well, just quickly, like I know we want to wrap it up soon, but. You know, my first child was a Clomid baby because we were trying for three huh. years. I was almost 30, and I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't want to be 50 and having my first kid. <laughs> so, um, you know, my doctor, we went through some rounds of steroids with the Clomid, and finally, you know, one child came. And I thought for sure, like, that's it. This is the fate of all of them. Like, I'm just going to have to go through all this. And the second child was a surprise. We had no idea. Hmm. Um, it was in the middle of a big move, and I was really sick, and the the floors had just been refinished, and I thought, I'm allergic to turpentine. That's got to be what the smell is. <laughs> but I was pregnant, second surprise. And the third time, I actually, there was five years between, four and a half years between the second and third. And we were intentionally trying, and I finally said, well, we'll go we'll get a script. And I went to the doctor. He gave me the script. We went through the thing for, like, three tries. Nothing happened. And I said, you know what? Two, we're done. That's fine. Six months later, I was pregnant and oh. I, because I wasn't thinking about that and I was settled. Of course, there was a whole set of process when I found out again. I'm like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> we were done. <laughs> but, you know, um, it's a lot of up and down and it's an emotional time and you see your friends around you and there's yeah. pressure, family, but try to try to relax, try to sleep well and eat well. That was another thing I didn't do, you know, eat enough. Yeah, and it makes sense, right? So if you think from a physiology standpoint that, you know, is your body really going to want to conceive and to provide for another human if, in essence, all the resources coming in are limited and the stress level is super high at the same time? You know, just, right. just not that conducive. Exactly. Of course, after I stopped having kids, everything regulated over time because I worked on all those other things. I worked on getting the food in order and the stress management and, and you know, now I'm approaching a whole nother season of life in the next few years, which will bring on a whole nother set of challenges and questions. <laughs> but Great. So one last question and then we'll wrap up. You had... Uh, mentioned a ketogenic diet for PCOS and just, you know, poking around online on the wild woolly 
interwebs. <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff, pro and con, about using a ketogenic diet for PCOS. But uh, what was your experience and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I kind of got into the ketogenic diet because it was the let's do more approach. Sure. So paleo was great and then it stopped working. So I must work harder yeah, to you paleo know. harder. That's the solution. Yeah, that was kind of <laughs> how I ended up in that camp. And uh, it was very hard to maintain. I mean, that, if anything, like that was the hardest part was to, to just maintain that. Um, it just was not pleasurable for me. <laughs> it left me very tired. Um, it probably stressed my system out even more. I, I lost a lot of hair. Mm. It's all grown back now, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't ever want to go back to that town. <laughs> I, I don't know if my cycles got better then too. I mean, it might have been a little more regular, but I also, you know, couldn't last more than like three months at it, and I was done. And that's when I started adding carbs back in, you know, because I was like, this is not working. It's it's inconvenient. <laughs> Yeah, it's very hard. He wants to eat all that fat. And then there was a lot of, you know, discussion about like ratios of fat. You know, like it should be 70% fat. And I'm like, that's a lot of fat to be eating in a day. I certainly didn't have an appetite on the, when I did it, but, you know, I don't, I was also very neurotic too. I was like on edge and, yeah. was not a pleasant experience, I'm sure, for my whole family. They're probably like, thank God she's done. Yeah, I mean, my my bias on that is I I think in a, a sub-fraction of people with it, I think it may work. But even then, I've often wondered about those people that obviously would make sure they're doing it right, make sure they're actually in ketosis, all that kind of stuff. But I've often wondered if those are people that just have really high inflammation and maybe that's the only way they can get their inflammation under control and maybe that's how they feel better. Um, but in general, I just haven't seen too many people do it that report that they are moving in the right direction and feel better. So, yeah, it, it left me more bloated. I mean, weight shift. I mean, like I went from in general from when I first shifted to Whole Foods, I was originally two sixty five, and then I got to two forty five, and then I got to two hundred and five. And that's where kind of things stalled. And that's when I tried to shift to the ketogenic, but it didn't, it didn't shift anything further, you know, in the, in the weight department. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much for all the great info. I think that's super helpful. And especially with all your experience of, you know, going through it yourself and helping clients. If there's people listening who think they have PCOS or people who know that they, they do, what would you recommend are like the top three things that they should consider? Definitely go to a doctor, get the diagnosis and, and follow their advice. And if you have to get a second or third opinion about it, cause some, I mean like, you know, nowadays a lot of, I had an endocrinologist that actually was pushing low carb mm. for a while. Mm. And I switched because um, I already went to that town. So I knew that wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't going to be been here. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, but, um, and then stay under the care of whether it's your endo or OBGYN for, you know, health reasons so that they can keep your blood markers in check, you know, and then also just journal, journal, um, not only your blood levels, but journal things that go on like stressful times. Is it lack of sleep? Things like that so that you can actually start seeing some trends for yourself to be able to help yourself better. 
you know, and if a doctor puts you on metformin, it's not the end of the world. Uh, having PCOS is not the end of the world either. It's just a matter of working with what you got, you know. So that's great. And my thoughts on metformin is that there's a lot of other drugs I think that are probably not that beneficial. And the flip side is when you need certain drugs, they're extremely beneficial. You know, I had to get on antibiotics back in February because I got super sick. I'm not a big fan of them, but oh wow, they work, and I felt so much better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think thank God for them. <laughs> yeah, I was like super happy and like, and of course, you know, some of my friends are like you're destroying all your gut bacteria. I'm like, dude, I was so horribly sick and had you know fluid in my lungs and everything else that I can probably fix that later, and I'm functional yeah. now. You know, within a couple of days. So, um, having said all that, I think if there is a drug that people are on the safety profile and what we know about metformin is actually really good compared to a lot of other things. So I would not be super concerned about that and obviously work through your physician with that. Yes, obviously. And, and, you know, some people get on it thinking it's a magic weight loss pill, which it isn't right. You know, for some they do, it depends again, it depends on how they're coming into the situation and how, how sick they are. But uh, for me, I didn't lose any weight being on the uh, metformin. But, you know, it, it helped move me. It helped progress me to the point where I don't really need it anymore. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Lori. And if people want to find out more about you or different things that maybe even you do work through Eat to Perform, how would they find out? They can contact me. I do customer service there. At info at eat to perform, um, you can find me on the Facebook sites there as well. I'm pretty much all over the place <laughs> with all our boards and uh, the coaches course. I'm in and out of those groups. So, and if you can't find me, someone will know where to find me. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I I think it's also very nice to have someone who's been through it, who is a female, to talk to other females about it because it's. You know, I think having that experience and going through it and being very successful like you have been, I think is extremely useful for other people because they can relate to it and they can also see that it may be a longer term process, but it is not, like you said, a life sentences and you can make, you know, very positive changes like you have over time too, which I think is really cool to see. And it's sustainable. I think that's the yeah. most sane part is that you're not doing some crazy you know, crazy way of, you know, trying to maintain a, a normal life. So. Cool. Well, thank you very much. So well, was, thanks for asking me. It yeah, was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Lori Walsh there. We're talking all about PCOS and I'm Dr. Mike T. Nelson for the Eat to Perform podcast. Thank you all very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>